Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.02 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 3rd of October, 2022. This is episode 624 of Bitcoin and... (laughs) It's Monday. That's right. It's Monday. Although I guess we shouldn't really be crying all that much. I mean, we got a bump in Bitcoin and apparently there's some talk that Nidig bought like $720 million worth of Bitcoin at like 19172 bucks. So we got a little bump in, in price, but you know, it is still just a nasty ass clown show out there, ladies and gentlemen. And also this, <clears throat> I'm going to be reading sh- uh, uh, the stories today in blocks. Uh, I mean, like, you know, the Bitcoin magazine stuff is all going to be together. I'm not able to intersperse the stories and really arrange the show anymore like I want to because TweetDeck has selected me to try out their new uh, TweetDeck, which looks almost exactly like you would expect Twitter Corporation to turn TweetDeck into. If you guys haven't been, if you're not using TweetDeck or you haven't looked at it, uh, you might want to look at it again because it has really been a hell of a tool to help me uh, organize this show. But I don't think that that I think that's going away. Uh, I still like TweetDeck because I can have multiple columns of you know things going on in in Twitter, and it makes it much easier to look at what's going on and filter out the damn noise. If you're if you have been wondering why Twitter sucks so bad and you're not using lists, that's one reason. The other reason is if you're just looking at your timeline and you've only got that one column, not only are you getting noise because you're not filtering lists, but you're not able to look at several other things going on at once. You got to switch back and forth. Well, TweetDeck gives you the ability to look at your feed, like a, one of your lists or you know two or three of your lists. You've got you know good room for about six columns uh, on TweetDeck. But they removed my ability to move stuff around. So um, I'm kind of have, I got to get used to the new interface. It looks nice. It's a little on the slow side, but eh, you know, you got to change with the times. And so does Nashville, Tennessee. The American Bitcoin revival takes root in Nashville, Tennessee. Even Price has it for Bitcoin magazine. <laughs> Americans love a good revival. A revival is religious fervor that spreads across the land, often leaving new churches and social movements in its wake. Revivals start with a deep and pervasive sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo. Now, no shit. Then a few luminaries step up and begin preaching a new and better way to believe and to organize. These early folks preach to the masses and recruit a following. They take their message on the road and evangelize it to as many people as they can possibly reach. In the wake of a revival, the social and legal landscape is irrevocably changed. New churches spring up and old ones are forced to splinter, shrink, and adapt. Laws are passed and social institutions are forced to reckon with a newly organized and dedicated constituency. Related social movements fork off and forge their own path for societal change. Eventually, the religious fervor dies down as everyone adapts to the new reality of their country. I think we are in the early stages of another American revival. Unlike past revivals, this one is not religious. It is monetary in nature. 
I recently spent some time at Bitcoin Park in Nashville, Tennessee, getting to know other Bitcoin meetup organizers from all over the United States and Canada. We were invited by Odell and Bitkite to an event called Grassroots Bitcoin to collaborate and discuss how we can increase Bitcoin adoption and support local communities. I met dozens of other meetup organizers. We swapped stories and learned about each other's motivations, goals, and hopes. We saw presentations covering a variety of topics. Bitcoin is a tool for human rights. Bitcoin is a tool for small business. Strategies for how to grow your Bitcoin meetup, both technical and social. Tools for self-sovereign cold storage. Tools and advice to help you buy, sell, and manage your Bitcoin. How and why to work with politicians to advance our common goals. You can listen to some of the discussions here and they give a link. There was an abundance of Bitcoin culture on display from complimentary Pelican cases to the ultimate Bitcoin social event, a beefsteak dinner. I don't subscribe to all of the beliefs adopted by Bitcoiners. For example, I drove hours to get my first COVID-19 vaccine and I usually try to eat more vegetables than meat. (laughs) But other common Bitcoin beliefs make good sense to me. Grow your own food. Learn to shoot a gun because it could literally save your life one day. I think a growing social movement requires a vibrant cultural identity, and Bitcoin is no exception. One thing that struck me about this group was the diversity of personalities and backgrounds on display. There were city folks and country folks, Christians, Muslims, Jews, and atheists. I saw programmers rubbing elbows and sharing meals with ranchers. There were HVAC repairmen, former cops, and flight attendants. Bitcoin truly attracts men and women from all walks of life. Toward the end of the event, when a former pastor took the stage and declared that Bitcoin is his new church, it dawned on me that we are now in the early stages of another American revival. For a revival to catch on, it needs to appeal to a broad and deep cross-section of society. That is exactly what I saw in Nashville. Bitcoin's social movement is small and vigorous, rooted in a deep uneasiness and suspicion of the top-down forces at work in our society. I think a sea change has taken place in the past few years. Most of the meetups represented in Nashville were founded in the wake of the COVID lockdowns. I think our national response to the pandemic sparked a lot of skepticism that has now taken root at these meetups. I've been a Bitcoiner for longer than I like to admit. I have had many conversations with no-coiners and their reactions range from mild interest to visceral rejection. Over the years, I stopped initiating these conversations. In the past week, my eyes have been open to the fiery, impassioned core of the movement. I have never talked to a group of Bitcoiners with greater conviction or sense of purpose. I think we're turning a corner. There has never been a better time to seek out Bitcoin fence-sitters and give them the nudge they need to install a wallet and begin their own journey. Throughout the event, participants shared tales and pictures of all the normal folks they orange-pilled. It became a badge of honor to talk your waiter into downloading a Bitcoin wallet and receiving their very first uh, tip in Satoshis. Bitcoiners are hungry for converts, and they carry a very compelling message in times of high inflation and rising autocracy. I think of 2020 as a drought in American society. People were told where they could go, how to behave and what to wear. For a freedom-loving populace in a country founded on the ideals of individual liberty, this kind of environment is bound to provoke a countercultural reaction. Bitcoin organizers are the tip of the spear of a growing social movement. I see a fire burning in these folks and they are carrying these embers to the masses one person at a time. Forest fires always start small. If conditions are ripe, they grow at an exponential pace, slowly at first, but if you stop paying attention, you'll be caught off guard by the rapidity and intensity of the conflagration. After the fire passes, a new season of growth and renewal springs up from the ashes. Don't be caught off guard. Join your local Bitcoin meetup and let's fix the root of so many problems in our society. Let's fix the money. One last note. I believe America's robust culture of individual liberties uniquely positions us to be the home of Bitcoin, the home of freedom money. But this is far from guaranteed. In order to get there, we need the support of politicians. A revival can be a powerful tool to accelerate political careers. Invite your political representatives to a Bitcoin meetup. Show them firsthand the potency of this social movement. 
Talk to them about the challenges you face trying to grow Bitcoin adoption and how they can earn your vote. They are listening. Make sure they hear the right message. Okay, even Price uh, wrote this one for Bitcoin Magazine. <clears throat> and I don't agree with the politician section. I just, I just don't. I mean, even, I'm, I'm, or Evan, I'm sure his heart is in the right place. You know, I've heard this story many times before, but I've lost all faith in the political class. People that want to be a politician want to hold some sort of office. I don't trust them by necessity. I do not trust them. I don't see, I don't see the necessity at this point in time, maybe later. Yeah, sure. Maybe later, but I, I kind of don't think we're there yet. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, if you want to go do that, then by all means, man, full speed ahead, motherfucker, let's go get them. But I, if people are going to ask me why, why I haven't just made calls to my politicians because they don't listen and don't care. And most of them don't really like you anyway, because all the ones that actually have any kind of real power whatsoever, they've been there for years and years and years and their disdain for the public grows exponentially just like a forest fire. And it's reached, it's reached a point at which I can only say the, the following sentence. They hate you and they want you to die. You are the carbon they want to reduce. So everything else about this is great, man. I love what Matt O'Dell is doing out there in Nashville. And I was always surprised that Matt O'Dell ended up in Nashville because he seems like such a New Yorker, right? And he's in Nashville. And I think that that's, that's freaking great. I would have loved to have gone to this thing, but two things. I didn't get an invitation, so I should probably hit the baby crying thing, but I won't. Um, and also, I God, Nashville is literally on the other end of the country for me. We're talking 3,000 miles, give and take. That's a long, that's so far to go. Um, maybe one of these days. And, and one of these days, if my hatred of flying uh, stops, which it probably won't, then I'll board a plane and it'll be much easier. Maybe I'll learn how to take Amtrak if the railroads are still around in the future. Who knows? It looks pretty bad for all of them. Five advantages of using Bitcoin to pay your rent. Uh, Jenna Hall writes it for Bitcoin Magazine. Over the past few years, an increasing number of companies worldwide have started allowing customers to pay for their products and services with Bitcoin. While Bitcoin used to be considered a niche asset, it's now emerged as a highly popular currency and is treated as a viable alternative to cash and credit for many major retailers. Now that you can use Bitcoin to purchase almost anything, some are wondering how they can use the digital currency to buy a home or even pay their rent. With Bitcoin becoming more intertwined with real estate transactions, you may be wondering if paying rent with Bitcoin is a good option. Whether you're a landlord or a tenant, here's what you need to know. Currently, there are two ways landlords can collect Bitcoin rental payments. The first is by using a property management platform that leverages technology to process Bitcoin payments. The second is by simply transferring peer-to-peer -peer with the tenant. For payments made through a property management software, both the tenant and the landlord must have an account with the platform. Landlord can then send the tenant a payment request and the tenant can choose how they want to pay. They can transfer Bitcoin directly through a brokerage like Coinbase or scan a QR code of the payment request and pay through their digital wallet. It's important to note that most property management platforms don't hold any digital currency. They simply convert the coins into U.S. dollars and transfer payments to the landlord as such. Without a platform, tenants can still pay an apartment, or rather, sorry, can still rent an apartment with Bitcoin by transferring their holdings into the landlord's digital wallet. Landlords and tenants should keep in mind that transferring Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer leaves no paper trail, so it's a good idea to create documentation that includes evidence of payment records to avoid any potential issues. Like, hey, you didn't pay. <laughs> you need a receipt, guys. That's a very good point. You at least need a receipt, all right? Uh, whether you're a landlord or a tenant, there are many advantages to using Bitcoin for rental payments. Here's the top five benefits to help you decide if it's a good option for you. 
more flexibility. Renters are looking for properties that give them more payment flexibility. According to a recent study from The Motley Fool, more than half of renters surveyed said they, they, would, uh, they would more or pay more in rent to have more convenient payment options. Payments with Bitcoin can be fully digital and made on a phone, computer, or tablet. Unlike traditional banks, Bitcoin payments can be made and received 24-7. This means that landlords won't have to wait business hours or until business hours or after a holiday weekend to receive their rental payment. Two, simpler payments for those renting abroad. Renting abroad can be tricky, especially when the landlord and tenant use different currencies. Transferring money in traditional ways likely means paying wire transfer fees, foreign transaction fees, and currency conversion fees. And on top of that, landlords and tenants must consider foreign exchange rates and the time delay it often takes for money to transfer internationally. However, Bitcoin can be used internationally instantly with little to no fee, saving time and money for both the landlord and the tenant. Number three, fewer transaction fees. Most online rent paying platforms charge a fee to pay rent with a credit card. This fee is typically 2.5 to 2.9% of the rent amount and is paid for by the tenant. Even third party platforms like Venmo and PayPal charge a fee of about 3% for business transactions like accepting rent payments, which landlords have to pay when accepting payments. Renters and landlords can avoid these transaction fees altogether by transferring Bitcoin directly, which could save the, each party hundreds or even thousands of dollars over a few years. If tenants and landlords choose to transfer Bitcoin via a property management platform that supports Bitcoin transactions, they'll likely still need to pay transaction fees. However, those fees are meager compared to credit card processing fees. Four, added privacy for tenants. Bitcoin payments are great for tenants who prioritize their financial privacy. Bitcoin uses anonymous addresses that change for each transaction, so payments don't require any personal information, traceable credit card numbers, or account numbers. Given the pseudonymous nature of the blockchain, Bitcoin payments are ideal for those who are privacy forward and wary about sharing their personal information. Fifth, potential first mover advantage. Bitcoin is increasingly becoming more accepted in mainstream markets, with many companies beginning to accept Bitcoin as payment. However, there's still some work to be done before it becomes a financial norm. Landlords who are forward-thinking, tech-savvy, and want to remain at the front of upcoming trends may want to consider being early adopters. Potential renters may see the value in a property that accepts Bitcoin and be more inclined to rent with those properties. So what to keep in mind when using Bitcoin for rent? Here are some things to consider. Cashing out versus hodling. If you're a landlord accepting Bitcoin, you have the choice of either cashing out or holding. It's a good idea to consider the pros and cons of each. Bitcoin is known to be volatile and the amount a tenant pays in Bitcoin could change quickly. Landlords should examine their financial goals and consider speaking to a financial advisor to see which option works best for them. Rent amounts could fluctuate. Since the value of Bitcoin fluctuates, so will monthly rental amounts. This means that the amount of Bitcoin you give or receive for rent could change month to month. Keep your documentation. Given the nature of Bitcoin that makes it more challenging to trace, landlords and tenants should protect themselves by keeping records of rent payments using Bitcoin to the best of their ability. Suppose landlords and tenants plan on transferring peer-to-peer. In that case, it's a good idea to consult with a legal professional to ensure proper paperwork and documentation about a rental payment agreement is created. Just some, you know, that's the end of the article. That's some some things to keep in mind. And that, you know, honestly, I've been wanting, we've got a, my family has got a couple of properties in Santa Fe that we rent out. And I have been thinking seriously about uh, chart, starting to charge a premium for uh, those that want to pay in fiat and uh, if they don't want to pay in fiat and they want to keep their rent the same way then they start paying us in bitcoin i used to think in the other way uh, what do i mean by that well i mean that i would give a discount for people who are paying in bitcoin but now i don't I, i've just heard too many people make a really great argument that it should be the other way around it should be that you pay a premium if you want to pay in fiat currencies 
and a normal the normal price if you pay in Bitcoin. So like let's say I'm paying. Uh, we've got a renter that's like, uh, I don't know, let's say 1500 bucks a month. I'm not sure what it is right right yet. <clears throat> Our uh, property manager kind of changes that on us every once in a while. Let's say it's 1500 bucks a month. And I go to the uh, uh, property manager and say, hey, I want you to cut a deal with the tenant. And it's now going to be $1,600 a month if they pay in cash or if they want to pay in Bitcoin, it will remain $1,500. I, I honestly think that that would be a better way to go about it than say, hey, I'm going to knock 10% off of your rent if you pay in Bitcoin because that cheapens Bitcoin's use case. No, you need to make the fiat use case more expensive for the person that you're transacting with. I've come to I've come to really really think that that's the way to go. But we have other fish to fry. Bitcoin magazines Aaron Daniel and William D. Mueller collaborate on this piece. A decade later, Ross Ulbricht's Silk Road sentencing demonstrates the government's fear of Bitcoin. Following a multi-week trial in Manhattan's United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, Ross Ulbricht, the creator and operator of the Silk Road, one of the first marketplaces to exclusively utilize Bitcoin, was sentenced to die in prison. The jury deliberated for a mere three and a half hours before convicting Ulbricht of the seven counts charged by the United States government. One, distributing narcotics. Two, distributing narcotics by means of the internet. Three, conspiring to distribute narcotics. Four, engaging in continuing criminal enterprise. Five, conspiring to commit computer hacking. Six, conspiring to, conspiring to traffic in false identity documents. And finally, seven, conspiring to commit money laundering. For those convictions, Ulbricht was handed five different sentences, one for 20 years, one for 15 years, one for five years, and two for life. That's two life sentences plus 40 years, ladies and gentlemen. If you do not know the severity of that sentencing, yes, it's two life sentences plus 40. It's almost unheard of in, any, in anything but the most extreme cases of homicide. And yet here we have this young man rotting away, destined to die in jail unless we can figure out a way to either bust him out or get him out using the system. But let's continue. The sentence handed down by the district court judge, two life sentences plus 40 years, sent shockwaves to the financial tech community, wherein many thought the sentence was disproportionate to the crime. After all, not one of Ulbricht's seven convictions, including accusations of violent conduct. Looking back at it a decade later, it appears that the severe sentence requested by the U.S. government was, at least in part, driven by a desire to backstop the U.S. dollar. Indeed, fiat is backed by the state's monopoly on violence, which in Ulbricht's case manifested through extreme prosecutorial power. First, it's worth taking a look at what factors played a role in Ulbricht's sentencing. According to the applicable United States Sentencing Guidelines, a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence was required for three of Ulbricht's convictions and a seven-year maximum sentence for two others. As the sentences can be served concurrently, Ulbricht could have, in theory, been sentenced to just a 20-year stint. Yet, in the United States government sentencing submission, prosecutors in the Southern District of New York requested the court to, quote, impose a lengthy sentence, one substantially above the 20-year mandatory minimum, end quote. Why? In the aftermath of Ulbricht sentencing, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York maintained that the pursuit stemmed from Ulbricht's involvement with drugs and narcotics. Quote, make no mistake, Ulbricht was a drug dealer and criminal profiteer who exploited people's addictions and contributed to the deaths of at least six young people. As if that's worse than six old people, whatever. But the U.S. attorney also made a point, made it a point to highlight Ulbricht's use of Bitcoin as the payment method fueling the anonymity provided by the Silk Road. Quote, Ulbricht deliberately operated Silk Road as an online criminal marketplace intended to enable its users to buy and sell drugs and other illegal goods and services anonymously and outside the reach of the law enforcement. Ulbricht des or designed Silk Road to include a Bitcoin-based payment system that served to facilitate the illegal commerce conducted on the site, including by concealing the identities and locations of the users transmitting and receiving funds through the site, end quote. 
How much of a role did Ulbricht's decision to implement Bitcoin and the Bitcoin Mixer or Tumblr play in this sentence? Eh, difficult to say. Ulbricht's sentence was due to be steep from the start, given that the criminal laws Ulbricht was convicted uh, convicted under were applied to make him responsible for the total amount of drugs and narcotics exchanged through the Silk Road. The more drugs trafficked, the higher the recommended initial sentence. But it should be noted that this loose interpretation of conspiracy has been criticized as a misapplication of the statute. In a standard conspiracy, all conspirators are aware of each other and agree to commit the crime multilaterally. With the Silk Road, there was not one large multilateral agreement, but many separate and distinct bilateral agreements between the website and each individual seller, many separate conspiracies in other words. Leaving this misapplication aside, by aggregate, the agreements between each user and the website into one massive criminal conspiracy, Ulbricht was charged with aiding in the transfer of over 60,720 kilos of cocaine, heroin, and meth. From that starting point, the sentencing judge applied several sentencing enhancements, aggravating factors that raise the recommended prison sentence in the U.S. sentencing guidelines charts, including those stemming from allegations that Ulbricht paid for murderers for hire in connection with the Silk Road. The sentencing judge determined that there is ample and unambiguous evidence that Ulbricht commissioned five murders as part of his effort to protect his criminal enterprise and that he paid for these murders. Mm -hmm. These allegations were not fully presented or proven during the conviction phase in the New York prosecution. And because of this, Ulbricht's attorneys could have challenged their admission, uh, their admission at the sentencing phase. But the defense declined to do so, and thus, the murder-for-hire evidence was admitted and became a key aggravating factor. God, his own lawyers fucked him. And Bitcoin itself was categorized as an aggravating factor. Ulbricht's computer hacking charges were enhanced due to his use of sophisticated means. The judge cited the, quote, use of Tor, which required some amount of sophistication, the Bitcoin Tumblr, of course, and the use of stealth listings, as grounds for the enhancement. These enhancements increased Ulbricht's suggested prison sentence under the federal sentencing guidelines to the maximum amount, life in prison, twice. Many of Ulbricht's supporters have cited the prison sentence as disproportionate to the crime. They may have a point, don't you think? Ulbricht's sentence far exceed. It far exceeds the average federal sentence length for drug offenders, which is about six years. As a first-time offender of a nonviolent crime, Ulbricht's sentence was eight times more severe than the sentencing handed down to former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for fatally kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. His double life sentence is more on par with convictions handed to serial killers, serial rapists, and child molesters. By examining the prosecutor's states, statements, the judge's ruling, the federal sentencing guidelines, and average sentences for other more reprehensible crimes, it thus appears that Ulbricht's extreme sentence is owed, at least in part, to the United States government's concern over Ulbricht's use of Bitcoin as the exclusive pseudonymous payment system for the Silk Road. That the U.S. government liberally applied its prosecutorial power against Ulbricht and the Silk Road to deter competition to the dollar became clearer when put in the context of other aggressive prosecutions of alternative currency users and promoters. Take Bernard von Nothaus, the founder of the National Organization for the Repeal of the Federal Reserve Act, or NORFED. Nothaus's organization created the Liberty Dollar, a private barter money system of coins and bills backed by specific weights of gold and silver. In 2009, Nothouse was arrested and charged with conspiracy and counterfeiting despite marketing the Liberty Dollar as a competitor to the United States dollar, not the genuine article. The prosecutors sought a sentence of 14 to 17 years for this septuagenarian, essentially a life sentence for a 70-year-old, and issued a press release lambasting the private barter money as a unique form of domestic terrorism. Fortunately for Nothouse, cooler heads prevailed and he was sentenced by the judge to a reasonable six months of home detention. And just last month, Mark Hopkins, a Bitcoin educator known as Dr. Bitcoin, pled guilty to charges of selling Bitcoin peer-to-peer -peer without a money transmitter's license. 
in violation of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network's regulations. Hopkins, now serving six to 15 months in federal prison, claimed that prosecutors coerced him into the plea deal by threatening to charge his wife alongside him if he didn't cooperate. These cases, including Ulbricht's, indicate the United States government is quick to use heavy-handed prosecutorial tactics for nonviolent offenses against its currency. One can only imagine the fate that would have awaited Satoshi Nakamoto had they not remained pseudonymous. Indeed, ladies and gentlemen, just think of Saddam Hussein and, God forbid, Gaddafi. Let's talk about Gaddafi for just a minute. Yes, it, it seems very clear that in the 80s or the early 90s or whenever that plane exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, that Gaddafi it seems clear that he ordered that hit, that he ordered that terrorist attack. And all hell broke loose for a couple of years and then everybody forgot about it. Everybody forgot about Gaddafi. And then he started doing something really weird. He started wanting to use money other than the United States dollar for trading energy. And guess what happened? That cackling witch, the murderer herself, supreme high murderess, Hillary Clinton was cackling. We came, we saw, he died. They fucking killed him. They killed him for not using the United States dollar. That's what they killed him for. He wasn't trying to figure out a way to do new terrorist attack. All of a sudden, we lost our collective minds and were rah-rah because they brought up Gaddafi and the Lockerbie Scotland shit all over again, painted him back into the corner of being a terrorist, and nobody gave a shit. I, 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 and I personally, I don't really, I didn't really like Gaddafi, except I got to look at what he did. And what did he do? Dudes, all he did was want to use another form of currency to trade in oil. That's, that's what his crime was. You saw what they did to Ross Ulbricht. You saw what they did to Gaddafi. The battle's coming. You got to be ready. You got to be ready. It's not going to be pretty. And this clown show, we call it a clown show all the time, but when you've got a dumpster on fire, on wheels, inside of a circus tent made of fucking plastic with a bunch of crazy people running around and you don't think that shit's going to stay right there? No, it's going to, It's somehow or another, it's going to start moving around and setting other shit on fire. The clown show will expand and it's a very dangerous clown show. It's not, it's not something that we can, should be pointing at and laughing, right? No, no, we should be pointing at it saying, and, and telling each other, you better get the hell out of the way. This thing is, it's, it, it's coming right for us. And let's see what's going on in the markets today as we run the numbers. CNBC, futures and commodities, West Texas Intermediate getting a bump today, damn near 5% to the upside $83.40. Brent North Sea, 4.19% four, uh, to the upside, $88.71. Natural gas, taking it in the crotch, 5.62% to the downside, all the way down to $6.38 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline, however, 5.5% to the upside, $2.49 a gallon. Uh, shiny metal rocks having a good day, 1.81% up for gold, putting it back over $1,700 for the first time in God knows how many weeks. Silver making a huge move, 8.2% to the upside. It has now gained its $20 a coin or an ounce uh, prestige again. Platinum, 4.67% to the upside. Copper is the only one down, but only by 0.01%. Palladium is up 2.5%. Agricultural futures are mostly down. Biggest loser today is going to be coffee, 2.35% to the downside. Biggest winner is soybean, 0.71% to the upside. And we have the Dow up 2.36%. Ah, look at that. This, yeah, there's, you know, UK and, and, and Europe isn't about to you know, just fucking implode and credit Swiss is Swiss isn't, you know, it's not about to, you know, be given cement loafers and, you know, 
thrown into the lake. No, no, no. Now everything's fine, ladies and gentlemen. It's all fine with the S&P up 2.19%. The NASDAQ is up 2%. S&P mini is up 2.79%. Everything's fine, ladies and gentlemen. It's just going ballers. Bitcoin, $19,458. Only 702,000 Bitcoin have exchanged hand in the last 24 hours. That's uh, that's a lot less. Uh, normally, we've been seeing, you know, one point something, you know, 1.5 million. I've seen it as high as 2.3 million. Back in the day when we were kicking around $68,000, it was like I could see... 6 million Bitcoin change hands. And that was just, that was par for the course back in those times. Now we're getting back down to sub 1 million. So what the hell is going on? I don't know, but uh, we have an average transaction value of 2.81 BTC and a median transaction value is lower today. 0.019 BTC, 377 bucks. Usually it's tagging around 500 and here we're well below 400. We have nine minute, 36 second block times, 0.06 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 9.9 taken overall in fees in the past 24 hours with a 12.52% drop in hash rate. Uh, we are at 243.44 exahashes per second. Shitcoin indicator is Doge holding at six United States pennies. We have 5,254 transactions waiting on four blocks to clear. We have a $374.8 billion market cap, which is 3.34% of gold's market cap. And if you so choose, you may get 11.6 ounces of the shiny metal rock with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,167,885.92 of, and 4,948 of those are in the Lightning Network, valued at $96.7 million, running over 17,230 Lightning nodes with 85,019 payment channels, and Tor capacity percentage has dropped again. 69.1% of all the Lightning Network is run over Tor. I remember when it was 75% and it's just slowly been dipping away. Hey, if anybody's got a, a clue as to why that's happening, uh, throw me a boostagram and I'll read it on air. Uh, speaking of boostograms, let's get to it because that does it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Let's talk about boosts. Letter 6173 with the striper boost. I don't agree with Bitcoin and others custody, but if you are going to hold Bitcoin in a retirement account, use a Roth IRA with physical custody, not rehypothecated. It's more tax advantageous. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Fatoshi sends 5,000 sats. I love the way boost can basically let me take over your show. Welcome to your new co-host. Welcome, man. Glad to have you in the co-pilot seat. Fatoshi with yet another 5,000 uh, Satoshi boost. Totally agree. Pay and replace use of Bitcoin is a total waste of time. Yeah, yeah. I Okay, I, I, I got a, a caveat on that one. I think it's a waste of time, which, okay, 80%, it's a waste of time, right? Why? If I convert US dollars to Bitcoin, send that Bitcoin to somebody else and on the other end, they automatically convert it back into US dollars. It's a waste of fucking time. And that's at least 80% of what's being done. That's my opinion. It's a gut feeling. No, I don't have charts or anything like that. It's just a gut feeling. 80, maybe 90% of the time it's done that way. It is not a waste of time if I convert US dollars to Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is sent to another user, and that Bitcoin is either one of two things, held by the user that received it for a good long time, good long time, like seven years, or that user uses that Bitcoin and sends it to somebody else to purchase goods or services. And if that person, if the last person on the chain then converts it to US dollars, it's still not a waste of time because at least for a little bit, we had some circularity. 
And that's what we're trying to get going on is just a little bit of circularity because you get a little bit first, you get more later. That's what I'm looking for. But US to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to US dollar. Nah, total waste of fucking time. Don't do it. It's just stupid. Uh, Greggy, 60 sats. You'll own sats and be happy. Damn, skippy, bro. Uh, Cryo sats since 33 sats. Booster shot. Boost. Flash power, 20 sats. Uh, Bubba, looks like he sent me 10 sats. Thank you, Bubba. I appreciate that. And DD Bresnahan sends 10 sats. None of those guys have messages attached to their boostergrams. That's okay. I'm not going to give them any shit today. We got other things to do. Like this one, Binance signs a memorandum of understanding with Kazakhstan to fight financial crime. Oh, put on your capes, boys and girls. The superheroes are here. Cointelegraph Prussian jaw draws them out for us. Global cryptocurrency exchange Binance has signed an MOU with the Financial Monitoring Agency of the Republic of Kazakhstan as part of its global law enforcement training program. The program, which involves officials from regulatory and law enforcement organizations worldwide, aims to strengthen industry cooperation with national and international law enforcement in the fight against financial crime and cybercrime. The program further aims to identify and block digital assets assets obtained illegally and used to launder criminal proceeds and finance terrorism. Kazakhstan is merged as one of the biggest ass kissers to the UN. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Did that come out loud? Let me try it again. Kazakhstan is emerged as one of the leading crypto nations for Bitcoin mining. And in recent times, the central Asian nation has also been developing favorable crypto regulations, such as allowing crypto exchanges to open bank accounts and even looking to legalize crypto use more broadly. Binance obtained an in-principle approval to operate in Kazakhstan earlier in August this year. Gleb Kostadev, regional head of Asia for Binance, told Cointelegraph that Kazakhstan's pro-crypto stance was one of the key reasons behind the partnership. He explained, quote, The government of Kazakhstan has significantly adjusted the relevant legislation, legitimizing activities in the field of mining and circulation of cryptocurrencies. We see great potential... <laughs> We see great potential in the country for further growth of the industry. And as leaders, we will be happy to contribute to this. All I can see is Borok. That's all I can see when I read that. The Binance Law Enforcement Training Program has been conducted in Israel, Canada, Brazil, France, Germany, Italy, and the United Kingdom and Norway. The program was officially launched on September the 26th, but the company's investigations team has been holding workshops for law enforcement for over the past year. In the absence of any robust crypto regulatory framework among the majority of the countries, the expansion of crypto exchanges like Binance into these jurisdictions comes with its own challenges. Thus, with the help of the training programs... Binance hopes to raise awareness among law enforcement agencies and officials to develop cooperation at a global level. Gag me with a spoon. The crypto exchange's focus on compliance and regulations comes after facing several warnings and investigations from financial regulators around the world. However, the exchange has managed to improve and even return to several jurisdictions such as Italy and France where it was deemed illegal to operate. Binance attributed its recent regulatory approvals in France, Italy, and Spain to the compliance measures it has undertaken recently. Okay, you got bullied into doing what the bully wants. That's all this is. That's all this is. If anybody's looking at CZ and Binance to be like a cape-wearing superhero, forget it. Forget it. The legacy financial system not only exists outside of us it exists inside of us and that's where it does the most damage you've been programmed from birth and yes you you whoever it is that's listening you are no different than anybody else that's listening to this all of us me included were raised and braised in the soup that is the legacy financial system it's part of your neurology when when was it that you first asked yourself, what, what is money? When was the first time you asked somebody else, what was money? How did you feel when you asked yourself that? How do you, how do you feel in your deprogramming from the legacy financial system? 
do you feel comfortable? Comfortable? No, you don't feel comfortable at all. Why don't you feel comfortable? It's like, you know, changing like, I don't know, if you shit your drawers, you take a shower and change into new pants. It's that just that fucking easy, isn't it? Not so with the legacy financial system, ladies and gentlemen, because it's a founding belief of your neurology. As your brain developed, everybody around you was already steeped at the, steeped at themselves in the legacy financial system. There was no escaping it. CZ is just as much of a legacy financial dinosaur as you and I once were. If you don't go through the deprogramming or you wish to deprogram and you continuously put yourself in the sights of governmental regulatory bodies and you provide them with a target, they are going to shoot you. The deprogramming has to come into play at a much deeper level level in your soul to get away from the legacy financial system. CZ was always going to be a lapdog for FOMAC or not, sorry, not FOMAC. What are those idiots in, in Brussels? Whatever. The European Union, the UN, the IMF, the Bank of Japan, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, all these assholes together, that's the representative state of the legacy financial system. He was always going to be their patsy. He was never, ever, ever going to not be their patsy. That may be why Jesse Powell stepped down from Kraken because he just can't. He's going to have to let Kraken go because whoever is leading that... Kraken's going to be a lapdog for financial regulators. Hoddle, hoddle, probably not. BISC, probably not. Why? Because it's truly decentralized, but nobody uses them. Well, I'm not going to say nobody doesn't use them. That's not fair. There are a shit ton of people that use it, but not as much of a shit ton of people that use it as use Coinbase or Binance or Kraken. You see what I'm getting at? If you understand that the legacy financial system lives within you, within your mind, that it's part of what developed you as a baby, even though you didn't know it, then you'll have the tools to be able to functionally deprogram yourself from that system. But CZ can't. He's going to be a lapdog for these people. And he doesn't even have the wherewithal like Jesse Powell did to step down. Just saying. Ether staking is too difficult, according to uh, community members. <laughs> wee, wee. Ezra Reguera, Cointelegraph, tells us more. After the Ethereum network's transition to proof of stake, staking Ether now plays a central role in validating blocks and securing the network. However, some community members believe that the staking process is too difficult, especially for regular people. I'm going to pause there to posit this question. What happens if all of the Ether is actually staked? Let's say 100% of all the supply of Ether is continuously staked. They produce more and it gets staked. What happens? Keep that in the back of your mind. In an Ethereum subreddit, a member of the community raised the topic of ETH staking and its difficulties. According to the user, it took them an entire weekend just to get things up and running. The user said that this may be something that those with unforgiving schedules just can't accommodate. And they wrote, quote, the Ethereum community likes to sugarcoat usability, but it's healthier to just admit this is not for everyone yet, end quote. In response to the thread, another community member also shared their experience in staking ETH and reminisced on Ethereum's early days. The user noted that blockchain interaction back then was also difficult before more user-friendly options came out. The community member also highlighted that setting up a node needs more effort than we can expect the average person to put in, end quote. Apart from the difficulties in setting up, the issue of bandwidth consumption was also brought up. Because of the high bandwidth consumption, a user said that there is a risk of being shut down by your internet service provider. Another user mentioned that the cost of going over the internet data cap could possibly kill any staking gains. Meanwhile, another community member disagreed, arguing that staking is not intended to be an easy thing that everybody can do. Quote, people keep treating staking as getting free cash when it isn't. You are effectively being paid to do a job, and this takes a certain amount of knowledge and effort, they said. Even though there may be some difficulties with staking, there have also been some positive developments post-merge. On September the 15th, the day of the merge, the daily blocks created spiked from 6,000 to 
7,100 showing an 18% increase. Apart from this, the average time that it takes validators to verify transactions dropped by 13%. Well, we knew that that shit was going to happen. That was the, that was one of, that was their, one of their things. It's a feature, not a bug. Well, it actually is a bug that you think it's a feature, but it's not. It really is a bug. Now, getting back to my original question, what happens if 100% of Ether is staked and there's no Ether allowed to flow around? Let's say they do make this shit so easy that in, like any moron can do it with a click of two, you know, two mouse clicks and boom, you're done. You're staked. And you just stake all your shit because you're going to get more ETH out of the other side. Think about it this way. What if the only way to mine gold out of the ground was with cranes made of gold? Are you starting to see what I'm getting at here? Is it possible that this could be like a snake eating its own tail is, is sort of the be- other best way that I can put it. If you're driven to stake your, the very thing that you think is money, if you have to use the money to make the money and it's, uh, it's almost mind blowing that this shit is, is being allowed to occur in this entire ecosystem. It's just, it boggles my mind that, and I think this really does. I think this goes back to what I just said earlier. The, the legacy financial system is so ingrained in humanity. And it doesn't matter if you're Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Latin American, Australian, New Zealander. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You are infected by the legacy system of the West. We're the ones that came up with it. We're the ones that have been pushing it for decades and decades. Every Chinaman, every Japanese woman, Every Russian, you name it, man, inside of their brains at the very root, almost next to the goddamn lizard brain is the legacy financial system brain. And it's so hard to root out that you get stupid shit like staking. It's just the dumbest. It's just dumb. And it's going to, it's going to end poorly. Celsius founder reportedly withdrew $10 million before bankruptcy filing. Yeah, like that wasn't going to happen. Jesse Coughlin tells us what we already knew was going to happen from Cointelegraph. Celsius Network founder and former CEO Alex Mashinsky allegedly withdrew $10 million from the crypto lending platform mere weeks before the company froze customer funds and declared bankruptcy. The withdrawal was cited by sources from the Financial Times who said Mashinsky withdrew the funds in mid to late May prior to the June 12th pause on all withdrawals. Celsius was a popular crypto lending platform with 1.7 million customers and $25 billion in assets under management, but the prevailing poor crypto market conditions eventually led the company into a $2.85 billion gap in its balance sheet. This led Celsius to pause customer withdrawals in June before filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in July, with Mashinsky attempting to restructure and revive the company to be based around crypto custody services. The withdrawal raises questions about whether Mashinsky knew ahead of time that the company would be freezing customer funds and withdrawals. <laughs> what do you think? However, a spokesperson for Celsius told FT that the founder withdrew currency at the time to pay state and federal taxes. Quote, in the nine months leading up to that withdrawal, he consistently deposited cryptocurrency in amounts that totaled what he withdrew in May, the spokesperson said, adding Mashinsky and his family still had $44 million worth of crypto frozen on the platform. Meanwhile, sources told the FT the withdrawal was pre-planned in line with Mashinsky's estate planning. Why are you estate planning when you're that young, dude? (laughs) Roughly $8 million worth of assets withdrawn were used to pay income taxes arising from the yield the asset produced, and the remaining $2 million was made up of the platform's native token sell. The questions will likely be answered when the transactions in question will be presented by Celsius in court in the next few days as part of disclosures by the crypto lender regarding its finances. There's also a possibility Mashinsky could be forced to return the $10 million as in the 90 days leading up to the bankruptcy filing, payments by a company can be reversed to benefit creditors under United States laws. Mashinsky resigned as CEO of Celsius on September the 27th, saying his role had become an increasing distraction, but said he would continue to focus on helping a plan to return funds to creditors. Yeah, no. Yeah, he's, no. He knew. He knew. Mashinsky knew. 
Everybody that bought into the entire story of Cell got hosed. <clears throat> what can you do? We try to warn people, we really do, but then we get called toxic maximalists. We warned you. We even warned Kim Kardashian, or Kardashian. She's got to pay $1.26 million for illegally shilling an Ethereum token. Andrew Asmakov, Decrypt.co. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission today announced charges against Kim Kardashian for allegedly promoting what the commission has called a crypto asset security. The asset in question is an Ethereum Max token the reality TV superstar and influencer promoted last year. Other celebrities involved in the promotion of Emacs, an Ethereum-based token that generated publicity last summer, includes superstar boxer Floyd Mayweather Jr., who famously appeared in a t-shirt with the Emacs logo, logo at the stage of a Bitcoin maximalist conference in Miami in June 2021, and former NBA star Paul Pierce. Per the SEC's notice, Kardashian allegedly, allegedly failed to disclose a payment of $250,000 that she received for publishing a single Instagram post, which provided instructions for potential investors on how to purchase Emacs tokens. Quote, this case is a reminder that when celebrities or influencers endorse investment opportunities, including crypto asset securities, it doesn't mean that those investment products are right for all investors. We encourage investors to consider an investment potential, uh, investments potential risks and opportunities in light of their own financial goals, said SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Kardashian agreed to pay $1.26 million to settle the charges, the regulator added. She will also cooperate with an ongoing investigation and has agreed not to promote crypto securities for three years. Quote, Miss Kardashian's case also serves as a reminder to celebrities and others that the law requires them to disclose to the public when and how much they are paid to promote investing in a security. Gensler added. Kardashian, however, never, she never admitted to nor, or try that again, Kardashian, however, never admitted to nor denied the regulator's findings. Kardashian, Mayweather, and Pierce were sued earlier this year for their promotions of Ethereum Max, with investors accusing the celebrities of colluding with Emacs co-founders Steve Gentile and Giovanni Perone to pump the price of the token to lure buyers and then dump it, leaving the holders holding a bag. The price of Emacs peaked at Lots of zeros, uh, $597636. We're talking like fractions of fractions of fractions of a penny. Uh, in May of last year, after the token gained 14,020%, oh God, in value in a matter of a single week. However, plunging dramatically afterward, the asset is changing hands at a shit ton of zeros, 4490 at the time of writing, or almost 100% from its all-time high per CoinGecko. Kardashian, however, is still battling the lawsuit. In August, her lawyers attempted to have the complaint against Gentile dismissed. In a motion filed in a California U.S. District Court, the celebrity's defense said that the token buyers were only relying on two of her Instagram posts, and in those posts, the celebrity didn't give any investment advice. Kardashian's counsel also insists that the investors haven't specified that they saw Kardashian's post ahead of time or that they bought the Emacs tokens because of the posts. Now, doesn't matter. She's going to pay him one and a quarter million dollars just to get out of the, out of the scam that she you know, that she's in and slap on the wrist for her. She's multi, she has multiple, multiple millions of dollars. She doesn't care. 1.26. That's nothing. That's just nothing for her. That's just like peeling off hundred dollar bills at a club, man. And, 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 and what I find fascinating though, is that it's not a lifetime ban because in three years, she's going to do the same shit again. SEC is going to file charges on her again for promoting an illegal security asset. And she's going to pay $2.5 million in three years because, you know, inflation. And, and she'll get banned again for another three years and then she'll do it again. Because it's the cost of doing business. Unless you put this bitch in jail, she is never going to stop doing what she's doing. And if you really think that shilling is, you know, an illegal security on Instagram is worth all this, then maybe it's worth putting her ass in jail. Because all you're really telegraphing is that, hey, if, uh, you know, you pay us a little bit of grift and graft, uh, you know, you can continue doing business as normal, but we want our cut. 
The whole world is sick. Don't be sick with it. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. I got a joke. Dad says jokes. I ordered a chicken and an egg from Amazon. I'll let you know. Uh, Sorry about the uh, engine noise in the background. So I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you want to support the show, podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. I use Fountain App. You should use Fountain App. It's a great app. It really is. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.